This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Marissa Lennox. Good afternoon. I'm Marissa Lennox filling in for Libby's Nimer today. It's good to be with you all and thanks for being along. We begin this morning, this afternoon, I should say, with Canada's long-awaited strategy for dealing with China. It's been in the works for years and this morning Foreign Affairs Minister Melanie Jolie outlined broad themes of the strategy in a speech to the Asia Pacific Foundation and the Monk School of Global Affairs. You heard it in the news as well. What will this new strategy mean for Canada's relations with China? What about Canadian companies doing business over there? For that matter, is it time we reduce our dependence entirely on China for basic products? In just a few moments, Chek Kuang, who's with the Toronto Association for Democracy, Democracy in China will join me to discuss. But first, I wanted to share my own thoughts because when it comes to China, we tiptoe around in fear of giving offense and spoiling our business. And, you know, after all, Justin Trudeau, he campaigned on a China friendly platform. He was singularly focused on trade with the country, regardless of its atrocious human rights record at the time. And today, China continues in its persecution of Uyghurs and other Muslim minorities. What have we done to help those in mass detention camps? What about the threat that China currently poses to Taiwan? Do Melanie Jolie's remarks today reflect calls for an overhaul to how Canada deals with China? We'll discuss. But first, the numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll free 1-866-744-740. All right, let's bring in Chuck Kwong. It's good to have you back on the program. Hey there. Good afternoon, Melissa. All right. Well, you heard the speech, broad strokes. What's your take? Ten years too late. Mm. I uh, This should have been done ten years ago, um, as uh, many of the Chinese critics have always urged our government to do. Um, and you use exactly the right word. We've been tiptoeing around China as if it was a you know huge dragon that we are so afraid of kind of uh, disturbing it. So we did everything China asked us to do. And uh, and China was uh, has been emboldened by, by our tiptoeing, uh, both externally as in um, uh, using the wolf warrior diplomacy, but also in, uh, I'm sorry, in, uh, in um, dealing with our, what, what we call the internal threats. Um, so this is something that is uh, really concerning to us. Is anything? Did anything she say stand out to you? What were some of the highlights? Well, I, I, it's more, not not a highlight, but more of a concern. I mean, she talks about beefing up our security analysts, and and my, my take is that we've been. You have enough security analysts that has been. They have been warning you all, all these years that all the threats that China has posed externally uh, in, in our diplomatic world and internally within our civil society in Canada. But uh, the the uh, government, um, particularly the Trudeau government, has always ignored that. Mm-hmm. And as a result, uh, we, we basically are 10 years behind 
other countries like Australia, mm-hmm. who has been very, very upfront about um, fighting off China's influence mm-hmm. and fighting off China's uh, bullying. And of course, they suffer as a result of, of uh, trade sanctions and and all kinds of citizens being arrested. No different from our two Michaels, mm-hmm. but they certainly stood up to China and and look at where they are. They they are at peace with, with China in the sense that China respects that uh, a bully respect when you resist. Uh, a bully will further bully you if you decide to. You know, cower to to his or her um, you know bullying. I, I want to get your reaction to this comment because um, she talks a lot about, as you mentioned, Canadians doing business with and in China. And here's what she says: She said, "I'd like to say to Canadians doing business and with China, you need to be clear-eyed. The decisions you take as business people are your own. As Canada's top diplomat, my job is to tell you that there are geopolitical risks linked to doing business with the country. What is your position? I mean, a lot of people have been calling for Canadians and Canadian businesses. You know, we maybe it's time we reduce our dependence." on on China for some basic products. But what's your sort of position on Canada and doing business with and in China? Well, certainly reducing our dependence on China is uh, an admirable goal. Um, I'm not sure how practically we can um, do that, uh, but certainly we can try. Um, uh, the risk part is certainly very, very uh, pertinent. Uh, we have always talked talk to a business person. And then but unfortunately, um, a lot of us, including business people and people in the government, are sometimes a little bit naive in, in believing that China will toe the line of international trade and rule by law and so rule of law and, and so forth. And we always have that kind of wide-eyed um, thing that because we're blinded by by the kind of uh, economic scale that China offers, the market advantage, that we kind of look the other way around. We think that oh, no problem, you know, China will uh, will buy by our values and so forth. And when it comes down to, uh, like the two Michaels will show you, that uh, China is not, uh, you know, immune to uh, using very very uh, technical bullying techniques to to get what they want. In terms of uh, in the two Michaels, where they want exchange for Meng Wanzhou's freedom, so I think we have to be very clear-eyed. And certainly, there are a lot of risk, but there are certain risks when you're doing uh, countries uh, with other countries trade with other countries. However, the trade with China is very, very fraught with uh, potential potholes and 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 uh, and uh, um, you know um, unhappy endings. So she recognized that there's the threat there, but you know, to what extent is this an overhaul to how we deal with China? Because you say, you know, you mentioned the two Chinas after the two, sorry, the two Michaels rather after they returned to Canada. Uh, even the former ambassador, Canadian ambassador, said that we need to overhaul how we deal with this country and that we need to stop being naive with respect to China. Does this strategy? Does this a speech accomplish that? Uh, I certainly, it's a public acknowledgement. How much of that uh, is being carried out it's, it's remains to be seen. Uh, we are not holding our breath in terms of that uh, the current government is going to do anything different from what has done the last past 10 years. Um, and I want to point out that uh, this is beyond this external threat. There is an excellent report by Global News uh, a few days ago 
on very comprehensive report on the internal threats that China posed uh, in our society, including influencing the MPs, uh, the elected officials, and uh, using money as as a leverage to, you know, buy out or have have somebody people who are uh, pro China. For one thing, we also failed to pass for so many years the Foreign uh, Lobbying uh, Registration Act, uh, which forces foreign government to register their lobbyists. Australians have done that uh, through a very hard road of 10 years ago. They, they started doing that and making sure everybody who is uh, working for a foreign government register um, their role. And uh, so far, we have uh, failed to do that. And I, I'm, I'm just scratching my head. Mm-hmm. You know, we have looked at Australia, we see what they've done, and we've been, you know, the, the government has been criticized by many of us saying, look, you should do more, you have to do more. And yet we have these ambassadors who go there, and all they want to do is trade, 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 and never mind about human rights. Uh, the last ambassador um, did not even know about Uyghur camps when he was questioned in, in the parliamentary committee. Mm-hmm. So this shows you the kind of... Um, um, in the sense, the priority, the focus that the, this current government is do, putting on in terms of getting more trade from China and sort of, you know, ignoring and, and, and looking, you know, um, looking at, you know, not looking directly at what the threats China might be posing. I do think that Canada's track record on calling out human rights abusers is a bit erratic. I mean, we've done it for Saudi Arabia and Myanmar, but we were very exactly. timid in the way that we treated China and its brutal treatment of the Uyghurs that you just mentioned and sort of other religious minorities. She says in her speech, Melanie Jolie, that Ottawa will be more vocal. Okay. And what? Is that enough? Um, Vocal is not enough. Uh, Certainly, we want them to be more uh, upfront about uh, their vocal vocal kind of uh, vocalizing the threat that Chinese pose. Uh, I give you an example. I mean, the the Uyghur, um, the Parliament uh, passed, you know, twenty twenty eighty nine to zero or something like that. Um, the we um, condemning China's uh, genocide in in, in uh, the Xinjiang region, and yet none of the uh, government ministers, none of the uh, PMO or any any people from around there. Uh, dare say anything. It was as if nothing happened. You know, you know. Here's the will of people voted unanimously by all the MPs uh, around the country condemning China, and yet we have a government that failed to say anything about it. So I, I, I'm, I'm, I would say I'm hopeful. It's a little bit too optimistic. I'm certainly welcome uh, Minister Jolie's uh, statement. Uh, today, but I certainly wish that we could have done more and that we should do more. Meanwhile, China continues to threaten military force to bring Taiwan under its control. The Mm -hmm. Taiwanese have asked Canada for help. Do Mm -hmm. you get the sense that Canada is prepared to negotiate with the Taiwanese in support? I uh, have to see it to believe it. Um, I think you, you're quite right. Uh, we're still tiptoeing around the the, uh, the Taiwan question, and uh, certainly uh, the visit of the RMP is notwithstanding. Uh, I certainly hope we can, you know, be more vocal about it and then stop stop worrying about offending China. I think 
you know, China has been offending every other country, has been offended by every country uh, they seek. They're, they're not beyond criticizing, you know, beyond, going beyond diplomacy to criticize a country. Uh, look at what uh, some of these ambassadors uh, from China have done in, in Ottawa. You know, they openly criticize our uh, Minister Champagne at that time. They openly criticize uh, reporters who are who were questioning uh, China's uh, human rights policy. So there's no end to it. You're not going to put a stop on that. Uh, China will do what China wants to do. Uh, but we need to be clear-eyed about this thing. We need to, you know, make sure we, we team up with our allies, you know, Japan, Australia, uh, EU. Um, all these are our allies that actually help us with, uh, you know, uh, release the release of two micros, and I think we should count on them to have a united front uh, against China. And I think we should take a lead role in, in doing that. And unfortunately, as you can see, the, the recent uh, ASIC, uh, the Australia, India, and U, um, U.S. kind of Korean treaty uh, does not have Canada. I mean, we're a Pacific nation. Why, why, why are we not included? in this uh, coalition or, or our common front. That's because people like Australia and the U.S. don't trust us. They they see, they have seen our past record. Uh, like, like I said, the past 10 years is a very abysmal record dealing with China. And they've seen enough. Uh, even though we're one of the five eyes, um, I, we're the only, we are the only eye that is not seeing clearly uh, what the what the threat uh, China had posed. I'm speaking with Jack Kuang, who's with the Toronto Association for Democracy in China. And I just want to give the numbers out one more time uh, to join in on this conversation. 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-744-740. Let's go to the lines. Barry in North York, go ahead. Good afternoon. I wanted to ask Mr. Kuang something. First of all, I want to say that I was totally appalled during the two years Michael, the two Michaels were in prison. Mm-hmm. Our Canadian government did very little to release them. And, uh, and like you say, they're bullied by China, and they back down. Now, um, I saw on the internet a while ago that there's this girl that um, had said that the um, people that come from here, that are supposedly Chinese diplomats, come from China here, um, are actually representing the communist army, and they're threatening Chinese Canadians here. You know what they're still yes. doing now? Yes, and that's the report I, I, I alluded to, uh, the Global News report. It was very comprehensive. It deals with the past 10, 15 years of what China has been doing, via uh, its uh, consulates and embassies, uh, you know, sending agents and uh, friendly uh, pro-China uh, people to, um, you know, um, coerce and harass uh, dissidents from the Uyghur and from the Tibetan and from the Hong Kong community. Uh, nobody's immune. And and uh, and we just pretend, and RCMP couldn't do anything. They said, well, you know, it's none of our business. We, we, we can't trace it to the call. It could be uh, online. It could be uh, a phone call in the middle of the night. It could be a mild threat uh, saying, your parents back in China, uh, will be harassed if you don't come back to China or if you don't shut up. So these are the messages that we've been getting. And we have our report uh, with the parliament, with the PMO, uh, the Amnesty International did. Uh, it was a coalition that we put on the report of uh, 
a harassment report. This, this was done in 2016, and nobody picked up on it un, until recently. So it's it's a uh, it's a song that we've been singing for a long, long time, and unfortunately, uh, nobody has heard that. So you're going to push the federal government for that? That's going to be a start to show that they're um, saying what they're going yes. to do. Yes. Among them, the, the most important part is, of course, the lobbying uh, act, the foreign agents uh, lobbying registration. I think we need to pass that. Uh, at least you, you can identify who is who are the players. Uh, right now, the players are all filtering or infiltrating into our MP's office. I mean, we have records of people who are Chinese agents working for uh, as an assistant uh, or policy advisor to some of the MPs. Um, oh. There are many MPs affected, and we have a uh, in the global report that talks about a Ontario MP, uh, MPP, who's the funder of you know Chinese money from the consulate into uh, election candidates, uh, and we we know who that person is. But you know, there's something that uh, um, RCMP has not has turned a blind eye on. And this is something that we need to empower people like CSIS or RSMP to do. Would you be creating a, a, a petition um, with that in? I'd want to sign it, send it, and put it on Facebook. We'll um, do. We'll do. I think. I think certainly we've been uh, shouting the same thing uh, for a long time. Not just uh, myself or other my other critics, but also you know from all kinds, all walks of life, you know, academia. Uh, from the Uyghurs, from the Tibetans, and, and people, basically people who have been harassed. I know of many people who have now received threatened phone calls. Uh, they check in in a hotel, under, not under their name, and yet somehow they got a phone call in the hotel room and saying, we're going to come get you. Yeah. You know, this is somebody from Hong Kong who recently, you know, obviously got into... Uh, this whole um, uh, protest with uh, China. And so it's, you know, not the long arm of the law, but long arm of the CCP. Mm. Thanks, Barry, for your call. Chuck, before I let you go, what just should Canada's message to China be? We are happy to do business with you, but you have to abide by some of the rules, and mo- well, all the rules that of, of any decent uh, nation on earth that needs to respect the rule of law, the rule of international trade, and of course, um, Canadian values. And if you don't do that, I'm, I'm sorry, we have to be a little bit more vigilant. Uh, and I'm sorry to offend you, but this is the way we have to keep our country free. I don't know that I would go as far as to say <laughs> I'm sorry to China. All right, Chuck Kwong is with the Toronto <laughs> Association for Democracy in China. Thank you for your time. Take care. All right. Coming up, what's being done, if anything at all, to address the shortage of fever reducers and antibiotics? Justin Bates, CEO of the Ontario Pharmacists Association, is up next. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Marissa Lennox. Welcome back to Fight Back. In addition to shortages of children's Tylenol and Advil, there is yet another shortage that Canadians need to know about. Amoxicillin is a first-line antibiotic used to treat a range of bacterial infections from bronchitis to ear infections, and according to Health Canada, is in short supply. 
Have you had to deal with this or the ongoing shortage of fever reducers? The numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll free 1-866-744-740. Joining me now to react is Justin Bates, CEO of the Ontario Pharmacists Association. Hey, Justin. Hey, good afternoon. Thanks for having me on. Good to have you. One Canadian pharmacist described the situation this way. She writes, it's like Armageddon on the ground. No fever reducers, no antibiotics. Justin, I hate to overstate, but is this where we're at? Well, it certainly is a an anxious time for people when, you know, essential medicines like this are in short supply. And yes, it, it's a perfect storm. We have respiratory illnesses on the increase. So we have uh, what we anticipate to be a severe cold and flu season. And we continue to see the outbreak of uh, COVID, all of which put a strain on the over-the-counter medications for cold and flu and pain and fever relief, as well as now amoxicillin. But it is a demand side issue as opposed to supply interruptions or labor shortages in factories or any issue sourcing the active product ingredient. It's just the fact that demand is well outpacing supply and we're in this catch-up mode uh, in a constant cycle at this at this stage. So that's interesting because I was going to ask why the shortage. Is it supply chain or demand? But if it is, in fact, driven by demand, how long But for the alternative? So the alternative to the amoxicillin is something like an azithromycin. How long before that is in short supply too? Yeah, so we have a few options for the children's amoxicillin. Uh, many pharmacies can compound a uh, solution that have the raw ingredients. So that's sort of one of our... Uh, options. The second option would be to take the adult uh, tablets uh, and uh, split those, and either the child can swallow the half tablet or you can crush it and put it into some applesauce uh, or other types of food to make it more digestible. And also, as you mentioned, uh, looking at alternatives. There are a number of other uh, anti or uh, antibiotics that will help with infections, and, and I think that Obviously, as you put more strain on other things, uh, it does increase the risk of further reductions. But we also know the manufacturers are producing more and trying to up their production. So hopefully, with all of those mechanisms in place, as well as some rationing and making sure we're not over-prescribing for antibiotics, that we look at home-based remedies for things like fever and colds, um, that we can hopefully uh, avoid any further exasperation of this. Well, we're talking about the antibiotic shortage. We'll get to the fever and cold medication shortly because that's a whole other beast. Um, but it is interesting because, right, we're at the season where many of in- these infections that are going around, they're viral, but sometimes they can develop into those secondary bacterial infections, strep, sinus, ear infection. And without an antibiotic, I mean, you mentioned there were some alternatives, but I, I, I can't imagine that's the first line antibiotic people go to are the the amoxicillin or the penicillin. And so without it, I imagine it'd be very difficult to treat these kinds of infections. It is. And that's why it's so concerning. Uh, and I think we need to look at this from uh, the holistic approach of why do we have so few suppliers of such an essential medicine? It's first line of defense against many of these infections. And we only have four suppliers of which uh, many of them outsource the active product ingredients and the production. So it's not even done in the Canadian uh, borders, uh, within our, our borders. And I think domestic capacity is such an important topic to stabilize our supply chain because whether it's demand or other interruptions that could happen, 
drug shortages is something that's a very real threat to the health of Canadians. And we need to make investments in uh, factories and plants in Canada and making sure that we're less dependent on uh, third parties. It is so true. And are we? Is the government taking steps to do just that? Well, the government has been focused on the cost side for well over a decade. So there has been uh, a lot of deflationary pressures and these companies look at their, their profit and if it's not profitable, they, they stop making it. So you get in all kinds of therapeutic areas, less suppliers. Um, and a, a decision has to be made and it's somewhat philosophical in that do we want to be the lowest cost jurisdiction or do we want to make sure we have fair and reasonable reimbursement policies and enough suppliers in each of the categories so that we don't introduce um, the volatility that we're seeing in our supply chain. I mean, discussions right now are happening with government around further price reductions, and we're starting to see the cause and effect of that. Well, and it's also, it's not as if it's unprecedented, right? I mean, it's not uncommon to see a flux in the supply of antibiotics. Why haven't we learned from lessons of the past? Yeah, it's a great point. Uh, this uh, this isn't specific to Canada either. I mean, the, the amoxicillin shortage happened in the U.S. about two weeks ago. There were strong signals that that uh, would eventually impact the Canadian market, and here we are. Um, I mean, I would say we, as we often say, we're in unprecedented times in terms of just the, the number of people who have these types of bacterial infections and all the other things that are happening, probably because our immune systems have been somewhat protected by public health measures and staying at home for the last two years. And all of a sudden, we're all out, we're doing well, there's our normal activities, and now we're starting into the typical respiratory illness season, and it's, uh, that's the perfect storm. I'm on the line with Justin Bates, CEO of the Ontario Pharmacists Association. Have you had to deal with this shortage? Have you encountered it? Uh, the numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-744-740. Meanwhile, Justin, Canadian hospitals are struggling with an influx of children dealing with respiratory illnesses, and the shortage of children's Tylenol and Advil is only making this problem so much worse. Absolutely, and this is like the balloon. You squeeze it in the middle, and it's got to go somewhere. And the healthcare system is certainly overwhelmed at this stage. Everything from primary care, community-based services, to pharmacy to hospitals, and whether that's from the COVID outbreaks that we're seeing, whether that's from cold and flu and, and respiratory illnesses, uh, there's not many places to go. So as a last resort, people go into their emergency departments, which then, you know, it, it makes the situation that much worse um, and it, it burdens the hospital system. So. Part of that's product-based. If you can't find the product, a lot of the um, distribution of these products have been prioritized, like uh, fever and, and pain uh, medications in larger quantities. They go to hospitals as a priority because one of the things we've seen with children and adults is that we've had a backlog of surgeries throughout the last two years of the pandemic. They're going through that and addressing it, so more people need these medications as they're getting surgery. So hospitals have been the priority in terms of replenishment, and then you look at the community as sort of a secondary piece to that. But do hospitals have their supply? I mean, how widespread is the shortage? Is it, are hospitals feeling the pinch as well, or is it just really focused on the pharmacies? Yeah, I mean, this will likely be a precarious situation all the way through the winter. Um, I don't, I'm certainly not going to predict when we'll see the, the return of all products on the shelves because there's so many variables, but I think we can expect a bumpy road given all of the things that we do know and, and what we can anticipate uh, in the coming months. That said, 
there is some progress um, in terms of replenishment. Some pharmacies, for example, have supply of these products. Some do not. So it'll take some time to continue to uh, rebuild the stock. But hospitals have been prioritized. So many hospitals do have these stock bottles of liquid formulation that are larger in quantity and are able to uh, dispense it to uh, to children and adults. And that that's important because I think that needs to be stabilized, and then we'll see the normalization through uh, community pharmacy and other outlets. But we also need to look at rationing. So when I look at a, a pharmacy that has a full shelf, and I was in one uh, over the weekend, one that didn't have any and one that did, you know, I would like to see some of those put behind the counter mm-hmm. so that someone has to ask about it. Mm-hmm. And then you can ration it to a, you know, single a bottle or a package per customer because we want to avoid panic buying. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that because that obviously makes it worse. Well, is that what's contributing to it? Because it it is interesting. There's there's an abundance of Tylenol and Advil south of the border in the U.S. Mm-hmm. But until recently, we weren't permitted. I mean, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but as I understood, we weren't permitted to bring it into Canada because it lacked bilingual langle, labels. Rather, it's like you know the shortage has been going on since May. How Canadian of us! Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there, no question that uh, some of the good intentions that um, some of the hospitals had when they issued their alerts and letters and made recommendations around needing a prescription, which actually wasn't required, it, it kind of created a, or a further problem because people then did panic buy and bought more than they needed. So so that, I think, certainly didn't help in terms of um, the shortage and contributed to that 300% increase because manufacturers look at and, you know, historical data, and they forecast a year out, as well as looking at what's happening in the Southern Hemisphere during their respiratory illness season, and plan out that way. It's not something they can just turn a switch and increase production overnight. Um, so they were caught off guard by this unprecedented increase in demand. And in terms of what other options exist, you're quite right. The federal government has the authority to provide an exemption for products that aren't approved for sale in Canada on the over-the-counter products like Tylenol and Advil. There's really three issues with that. One is, uh, you mentioned the bilingual labeling. The second is the drug facts. So there are different requirements of what they need to tell the consumer about safety uh, cautions as well as the ingredients. And the dosing requirements is slightly different. Some of the concentration uh, of the products in the U.S. are different than the Canadian context. So you need to make sure from a safety perspective, people understand that, the measurements and so forth. But at the end of the day, it's safe for kids in the U.S., it's safe for kids in Canada, and we need to expedite those types of things so that we can get the products on the shelf. You know, Justin, we saw this morning there was a report that came out, you know, ER wait times are seeing unprecedented highs, and this has been going on for months. But, you know, just this month, for example, it was found that patients spent an average of 21.3 hours in an emergency w- room waiting to be admitted. Well, if people could manage their own fevers from home, and I appreciate it's not 100% of the people coming into ERs, but some of the people who don't have access to, to antibiotics to take down fevers, they end up in the emergency room. I mean, that would help with the influx. Well, there's a couple of things there. One, we have a shortage of doctors in primary care. People are looking to get prescriptions to begin with, um, may have limited options. In several provinces in Canada, pharmacists can prescribe antibiotics. They can't do that in, in Ontario. So it limits the access. Um, and, and I think that's a piece of it. The other piece of it is that, you know, not all fevers need to be treated. Not all colds need to be treated. You know, there are some simple remedies, uh, whether it's nasal sprays, rest, fluids, 
you know, all kinds of things that we can do. Um, most fevers do subside after 48 hours. Um, you really want the medium to high grade ones to be uh, paid special attention to. And that's where you should seek uh, medical advice. And because people have limited options, they're flooding the emergency departments. And we've talked about capacity challenges for, for some time. And, and if people continue to use ER as a primary care uh, window into the healthcare system, we're going to see this overwhelmed uh, system come to the brink of collapse because it's just not set up to do community-based healthcare services. So there's got to be a multiple solutions to this in our healthcare system. It's not a single solution that's going to address it. Before I let you go, uh, Crystal Ball, any idea as to when this situation will be rectified, uh, b- both fever fever reducers and and also the antibiotics? Well, we are seeing more supply come in of the children's Advil and Tylenol, so that's the good news. It would probably take another month or so to see more what I would consider to be uh, typical products in every pharmacy, but uh, that is being addressed. Manufacturers are, are producing up to 34% more than they would have done in a typical season. Um, so that's hopefully where we'll be at in mid-December to January. Uh, amoxicillin, I mean, I'll give you one example. One of the suppliers uh, won't have any available until January. Wow. So in that case, one out of four, you know, a quarter of the supply isn't going to be ready for replenishment until January. The others are ramping up production and trying to catch up. Um, but I, I expect this to be uh, volatile throughout the winter. I, I, I don't think we're going to suddenly see this um, uh, rectified in you know a particular date. I think it's something we're going to have to monitor. We're going to have to look at alternatives and, and continue to ration. Wow. All right. Justin Bates is the CEO of the Ontario Pharmacists Association. Thank you for your time. Thanks for having me on. All right. That's it for Fight Back today. I'll be in for Libby tomorrow. We'll see you then. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.